Welcome to Post-Exertional Mayonnaise Podcast. Um, we're joined today by Lisa Jumusis, and it's uh, it's brilliant to have you with us. Thank you. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Before I introduce you, should I, can I just ask a question? Because I keep meaning to ask people this, and um, I always keep forgetting. Do you like mayonnaise? Yes, I do. Oh, that's all right then. <laughs> it's a bit I of a... Oh, go on. I'm sorry. No, no, it's a bit of a random question, but because we called the podcast that, I, I thought I'd, I'd start ask people because because uh, I don't know some people don't like it. So, I'm I'm one of those people who splits the difference and uses low fat mayonnaise because it still has flavor. But um, yeah, I, I do love mayonnaise. Good idea. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, Lisa's a uh, author, and she wrote Altitude Sickness uh, with Future Tense Books publishers and um seattle metropolitan magazine named it one of the all-time 20 books every seattleite must read her essay after the fire was selected as one of the most notable essays uh, 2011 by best american essays and the seattle weekly named her one of 50 most 50 women who rock seattle she is an essayist with essayist essayist with the washington post um, her work appears in The Believer, Black Book, Esquire, Jezebel, McSweeney's, Monkey Bicycle, MSN, New York Magazine, and many others. Um, she has interviewed Dan Orbach of The Black Keys, Betty Davis, the legendary reclusive soul singer, Death Cab, Cab for Cutie, Estelle, Jennifer Lewis, Janelle, Moray, Jan- Janelle Monet, Alanis Morissette, Kelly Rowland, uh, and more. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, would you describe yourself as a... Um, an author, an essayist, a writer, you kind of cover a lot of different kind of bases, don't you? I do. I haven't published much fiction lately. I have published fiction short stories in the past. I describe myself as author, essayist, and activist. Because mm, it yeah. sums it all up, and it's alliterative, so <laughs> win-win. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I, I would say that Lisa lives with Emmy, and you've had to deal with cancer recently and a heart attack and... Um, do you want to sort of tell us your sort of briefly your chronic illness story? I, I would say that if people want to kind of learn a bit more, uh, um, uh, Lisa was recently on Millions Missing podcast, did a, a piece on there, and that's kind of what I listened to, and I thought it'd be brilliant to to talk to you and learn a bit more. So um, yeah, go and check that. out. I'll put a link in the um, in the description as well for that. But yeah, if you'd like to tell us a bit about your Emmy Emmy and chronic illness story, Lisa. Thank you, thank you. Um... I have had ME since 1991, and like many of us, I can pinpoint the day and time when the symptoms first arose. For me, it was Saturday. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it was Saturday, August 17th, 1991. I was at Seattle Center with my uh, my mom. Seattle Center is this. It was built for the Seattle World's Fair in Seattle in 1962, and it's just mm. this great location of the Space Needle. That's where the Space Needle is. Um, but of great older buildings and and a lot of our, like the Bumbershoot Annual Arts Festival is there. And so it's just a lovely, lovely place. And we were at a, we were attending a jewelry show and I was 24 years old, otherwise healthy. And at the time I was working as a domestic violence victim advocate for the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. So I was working with people who were under siege in their own homes. And I was volunteering at the crisis clinic and I was writing freelance at night. I worked out each day, had a very full, vibrant life. Um, and I looked at my mom, we're at this jewelry show at Seattle center. And I said, what? Like the ground felt like it had shook and Seattle's on a fault line. Uh, mm. If anyone's listening to this, that's my dog digging in the background. Um, <laughs> uh, and I thought perhaps we'd had a small earthquake. And she said, no, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? And the, it still felt like the floor was undulating and I had never experienced this before. And she suggested, let's get you outside. There was a hot dog stand right outside. She said, let's get, let's get you some food and sit. And I didn't feel good after I ate, but I felt better. And again, I'd had strep throat and other things. Like I'd had to have my tonsils out. But no indication this would be anything that was going to disrupt permanently the course of my life. So we just sat for a while. And we went back in. And because we were, I was 24 years old, uh, my friends and I were having a party that night. And at this age, I might say, oh, I'm too sick. 
Mm-hmm. And at that age, we still had, you know, this huge party. But I, throughout the entire night, it felt like I had this encroaching awful flu and I couldn't figure out how or why it was August. And from that to September 8th, September 8th is when I went to the emergency room for the first time. I, I walked to one end of my hallway and could not walk to the other end. And I called my parents and I'm very, my, my dad has since died, but I'm very close with both parents. And I said, something's wrong. I need to go to the emergency room. And they, they mobilized immediately because that's so out of character for me. And of course, and, and I know a number of us have similar experiences to this. Um, in the ER, they were just completely baffled. And all my tests at that point kept coming back normal, which was on paper that was gratifying. But on the other hand, it was really disconcerting because if I'm normal, why can't I walk? And why, what's happening? And mm. for the next four months, I had to move back home with my parents. And I was in a wheelchair for the most part. I could get out of it with help. Uh, one one of the only good doctors from that time, he was a cardiologist who was slightly older than I was. And he said, I don't know what you have, but I believe that you're sick because no 24-year-old voluntarily moves home with mom and dad. Mm-hmm. So if nothing else, he understood the paradigm. No one's doing that unless something's wrong. Uh, if I hadn't had the the good fortune to have parents and a brother who, who love me, I don't know. There are many times throughout the 33 years, almost 33 years I've had ME, that I don't know would I still be alive if I hadn't had the help of loved ones. And that's definitely mm-hmm. one of them. Um, some of my friends were also amazing, but I needed help showering. I needed help lifting my head. One of my friends, I threw up all over him. Uh, uh-huh. A rheumatologist had given me an experimental drug for lupus. And of course, I don't have lupus. And I just hurled it all over my friend, Dre. Hi, Dre. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) And it just got worse and worse and worse. And again, as is common for many of us, I slowly improved after the onset I was sent to physical therapy, which we now know is the worst possible thing. All we were doing was destroying my mitochondria. But it, it did help restore the awful degeneration of my muscles. My muscles regained some strength again. Hence, so I walked for with a cane for a long time. I tried to go back to work part-time for another year or so, and they were allowing me to work from home. And it was just unsustainable. And then my whole division got cut, and the part-time workers in my division got cut anyway. So that made the decision for me. But the extreme nausea, extreme dizziness, as you know, for all of us who experience this, fatigue is such a complete misnomer. Um, Mm. The absolute physical inability to lift one's head to get out of bed without help. I would have wet the bed without my mom helping me get in and out of bed. And she was an, she was a practicing deputy prosecuting attorney herself at that point. And well, not herself. We worked in different divisions of the same office um, as did my dad, but she took time off from work and was having to help me do every fucking thing. Mm. What happens if you don't have a person like that? And like I said, Mm. a lot of my friends at that time were very good. I lost some, and I know, again, this is common. I lost some over time Mm. because once it became clear, I was not going to get well. Some of them just bailed, but there are some from that period who are still very much in my life and I'm grateful and I love them. Mm. But, and I'm guessing we have a shared experience here too. There are many days, even though I know at this point, I'm going to wake up feeling unbearably ill. It's not a surprise. I am emotionally prepared for it, but there's still so many days when it strikes, when mm. I'm awake. I genuinely question, can I get through this day? Mm. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? It's a... It's, it's, all of us know it's almost unbearably difficult in it. The horror, the horror of it is compounded by a medical system that too often 
either ignored us or emotionally abused us. And we're starting to finally see the tide turning. We're finally starting to see ramifications from that. And I've definitely, there's three great doctors I've had, but three in 33 years. Hmm. And then there have been a few who have been okay. But if you look at the hundreds of physicians I've seen, and in my experience, massage therapists, I had two really good massage therapists, but I haven't found alternative medicine to be that much more effective. By this point, I've Mm. tried pretty much anything viable. And, Mm. and there have like, I really want to stress that from the beginning, there have been some very good clinicians across the board, but not nearly enough, not nearly enough. And more Mm. so than anything, I think MDs, and I can't speak to Britain, but I will go ahead and eviscerate the MDs in the United States. When the centers, our centers for disease control laid out the diagnostic criteria in 1988, it wasn't comprehensive. It did all of us a huge disservice by putting fatigue right in the name from the start. Because as Mm. you know, that's one symptom of about a dozen and people hear yeah. it and say, oh, I'm tired. I worked hard today. And, and they mm. are tired. Unquestionably, they're tired. They are not experiencing what we are experiencing. No. And the only one of the eight who apologized is Dr. Anthony Kamaroff of Harvard, who's by no means really an, an advocate for persons with ME. But even, even Dr. Anthony Kamaroff was like, wow, we screwed up with this name. Sorry. Mm. As we speak, and then I want to let you ask questions, but as we no, speak, go ahead. I'm, I'm no, as we speak in the United States right now, our National Institutes of Health is having a week-long conference on ME. And I've for seen clips, who, yeah. Yeah, they're doing amazing work, and the Open Medicine Foundation and ME Action and all sorts of ME advocacy groups are streaming it or posting video. Dr. Maureen Hansen is truly one of our heroes right now. She's a professor of molecular biology at Cornell. And she had a paper come out months ago on why she thinks it's, I'm going to synopsize a lot of it, but why she thinks the likely trigger is going to be the HHV6 virus after all. And she's astoundingly good. And in the start of the the paper in question, she writes about the history and why it used to be called chronic fatigue syndrome and why it should not be called chronic fatigue Mm. syndrome now. But about two hours ago, she said at this conference on ME for the National Institutes of Health, she said a point that I've been making forever, but she has a much bigger audience. She said, we know there is swelling of the brain and the spinal cord. So it is encephalomyelitis. It is time to drop the CFS once and for all. So I've already Mm. tweeted my thanks to her. But I think in particular for all of us who lived through the 90s, and I've spoken to people from the 80s and 70s, the emotional abuse at the hands of physicians was just unbearable. And that's why we have an illness with just a high suicide rate. We're Mm. ungodly and fathomably ill, and then we're treated like garbage by the people we're paying to help us. But that was a name that was completely weaponized just against us in in the 90s. And... Mm. I just will not use the hashtag. I will not call it CFS in any context. But I was I was really thrilled to hear Dr. Maureen Hansen say it today because she is she is at the forefront of the research and she's kind of one of one of the persons who really gives me hope right now. Mm. Yeah, it was. Um, I don't know about in 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 the US, but in I, I had any kind of when I was younger for sort of seven years in the nineties and it was very much called like yuppie flu then. I don't know if that was a term that you, yeah, you've got, heard before. And it's posh, cool. rich people that don't want to work. They, they sort of, yeah, it's, it's the stigma is just, is just awful, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and we um, both know the reason it got tagged yuppie flu is because people with a little, like I had money when this all started. I don't now, but I did then. Yeah. We're <clears> more <throat> likely to have access to healthcare. And because up until extremely recently, we did not have a diagnostic test and kudos to Oxford on your side of the pond for developing the diagnostic test about two months ago. It won't be ready for market for a while, but that is Oxford that kind of finally cracked the code. Um, But up until this test will be on the market, it remains a diagnosis of exclusion. So Mm. who has the insurance in the United States? And I know you guys have the NHS, 
But even so, wealthier people still have access to better health care. So people of means were able to go from doctor to doctor to doctor and have MS ruled out, have lupus ruled out, have myasthenia gravis ruled out, etc. And then you're officially diagnosed with ME. So of course, it had nothing to do with that we were yuppies and didn't want to work. It had everything to do with we were more likely to have access to to read, you know readily available healthcare. Mm. But yeah, mm. I hate that term. Anytime even people yeah. even joke about it, it's like no, don't. Yeah, yeah, it's just not it's not good. But um, yeah, and then so you've kind of you you sort of like been living with this for sort of thirty years, and then and then you've managed to kind of like build up a a, a a sort of a career as a writer and how how is that sort of um something you've managed alongside the me because it's 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 hard isn't it it's sort of like i guess some days you've got the brain energy and other days i know for me like sometimes i'll write a blog and then i won't be able to write a blog for you know months again afterwards because i just haven't got the sort of brain processing so that must be a real challenge for you it is it is thank you for asking um the last year is the first year of my career I have not had new work come out. And this will be the third podcast I've been interviewed on this year. Uh, my second Emmy podcast and earlier in the year, it's called Another Fucking Writing Podcast. And I was uh-huh. interviewed for that. <clears throat> but this is the first year ever I have not had new work come out. And well, I've had a piece accepted to an anthology, but it won't come out till next year. And that has been a gut punch. That has been a real gut punch. I'm, I'm devoting my, my time in between this onslaught of doctor appointments. Uh, I'm devoting it to finishing the second book. And there have been different iterations of that, both that I've scrapped and that have been rejected. But as I've joked to one of my closest friends, I will get this out if it has to come out posthumously. I do not give a fuck. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If I end up dying at the end of it, it was worth it. Um, I think it's the best thing I've written. So we'll see if others conclude the same. But what's, the, what's the new book about? The new book, it's called Fire in the Hole, A Eulogy for the Living. And it is a series of short essays about mm. about the onset. It focuses primarily for me with the first three years I had in me but it jumps right. back and forth to the present day to then, but also weaving in different parts of history that are, are relevant. What I'm hoping, my fondest hope will that will be that it is akin to what I'm going for is a contemporary version of Susan Sontag's illnesses metaphor. And that's a book that I recommend to everyone who is newly ill, because in addition to being, you know, she was a literary genius it's only, I think, 107 pages long, so it's not some huge tome. But she underscores the ways in which every generation or so, there is at least one illness that is completely dismissed. And she wrote this in the late 70s, and then she wrote a later version mm. in the 80s. Uh, she wrote it when she was diagnosed with cancer for the first time. And she talks about how tuberculosis, people with TB were told they had a tubercular personality until the advent of the microscope. And then it was like, oh, geez, we're sorry. You have a bacterial infection. Hmm. Now with MS, they, of course, were in the United States, at least, there were people who were institutionalized in mental institutions with MS before the advent of the, the MRI and we learned, oh, geez, your myelin sheath is disintegrating. Just from my own personal experience, this isn't in her book, but I know women who in the 60s and 70s gave birth to children with Down syndrome and doctors would blame them. What did you do wrong? Mm. I know women who, again, from that same period, have children who grew, as they grew, they developed schizophrenia. And again, the mothers were blamed for it. Um, it's only been this last week in the United States, there was finally a major treatment breakthrough for sickle cell anemia. So her whole, Susan Sontag's whole point, because she was writing specifically about cancer, which of course carries a stigma now, but carried so much more in the late 70s. She was writing throughout 
and and I'm not trying to overly synopsize this great literary work, but her the points that she was trying to make is too often you have the medical community just dismiss you. They can't figure out what it is. So mm. fuck you, you're making it up. By the way, hello everyone, mm. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> and her second point being you also have people during that era who are just kind of frightened. Well, this person mm. got sick and we don't know what it is. So therefore I'm going to freak out and stay, stay away from them. Mm. So my book fire in the hole, a eulogy for the living, uh, it, it focuses specifically on Emmy, but ties in different parts of history that are, are relevant and indeed mm. ties in parts of my own family's history that are relevant. Brilliant. It must be. I hope, I hope. The first book had such a smooth, fast publication, and this one has encountered every roadblock. So. Wow. Yeah. Um, oh, should we talk? Should we, should we talk about altitude sickness? Um, I, I I read it in in a morning, and um, and it's so well written, and I can see why it's won so many awards, and and um, I just got drawn into it really quickly, and um, what I found was really and i don't know whether it was um uh purposeful but it it was it was i wouldn't say easy to read because it, it was a really hard topic and I, we'll, we'll sort of talk about that but um what i found was that it was easy to read for me as somebody with me who kind of struggles with kind of like really heavy stuff in the sense that you kind of broke it down into sort of shorter sections didn't you and it was kind of it you could sort of read read a bit and kind of reflect on it and then read a bit more and um, do you want to talk about it and sort of just exp sort of explain what the book's about because it's deeply personal, isn't it? Sure, thank you. Uh, the book is about the death and life of my late best friend and on and off again romantic partner. We were on again, off again for over twenty one years, and and there were periods, long periods, we were just platonic, and other periods we were just dating. Um, but we talked on the phone almost every day and we were each other's person and he died mountain climbing his, he was supposed to be back at my place on October 6th. And we were going to go to our uh, literary reading together. And we had a whole system in place because he, he was an inveterate mountain climber and one of the most experienced in the region but we had a system in place, as he called it, the worry, the worry zone. If he wasn't back by a certain time, go ahead and start letting everyone know something's gone wrong. And he had been climbing for so long, he could, he could calibrate when he would be back and at which point I should start to worry. And despite the fact he went on God knows how many climbs around the world, we had never crossed into the worry zone before. And this time we did. And I called one of his friends. He's like, no, he knew he was one of his climbing friends. And but the next morning had the, the Chelan County Sheriff's office. We had a search and rescue. I of course was too ill to participate, but I was overseeing all the communication between friends, family, search and rescue media. It was, I've always say if he had come home alive, the four and a half days in which he was missing would remain the worst of my life. And mm. keep in mind the ME, the cancer, the heart attack, we'll get to all of that. When the person mm. you love most in this world is missing, we knew he was in the North Cascades, but we didn't know where. And he was climbing alone and that was his choice. Um, but his death more so than anything completely shattered me. By October 10th in the afternoon, uh, Lieutenant Agnew of the Chelan County Sheriff's Office told me his body had been found. And, when, and truly one of the most bizarre acts ever, uh, I was asking details and she said, this is, an off this is a matter for the coroner's office now and literally hung up on me. Mm. So I'm finding out he's dead and then like someone's hanging <laughs> up on you in that yeah, moment I, I was, it was just incredible <laughs> yes. reading it yeah like what so the book is about it starts with uh tj's memorial the reason i called him neil in the book and i discussed this recently earlier this year with a writing podcast i think if i had to do it all over again i would just call him tj 
I was writing it five years after he died. And mm. even then, even though I was writing this book that Future Tense Books had asked me to write, I was really moved by the offer. Neil was uh, my nickname for him. He called me Jack, short for Jack Kerouac. And mm -hmm. it was actually his idea. And I called him Neil for Neil Cassidy because he used to joke, everyone, <laughs> this was his joke, that he just kind of bopped around. And because I wrote about him so many times, I'm the one who made him interesting, which he <laughs> was being wildly self-deprecating and he was utterly fascinating all on his own. But that's why the, his name in the book is Neil. Uh, one of his family members called our local NPR affiliate after I'd done an interview. And she's like, he never went by Neil. I was like, not with you. <laughs> but uh, that person has a long-standing history of mental health issues. So that's a whole different topic. But so it's an account of his death. And he always said he felt most alive while he was mountain climbing. And I've been asked this next question repeatedly. Was he in any way suicidal? No, never. And he and I discussed this at length. He never was. I'm the one who experiences suicidal ideations, and that's how the subject would come up. He would have what he would call his winter blahs, so periods of kind of low-grade depression in the winter. The only thing that gives me solace is he, he fell a thousand feet and died instantly. We know that with a fall of that magnitude, usually a person's lungs collapse and they lose consciousness before they hit the ground. So there would have been a few seconds in which he knew he was going to die. Hmm. But we all have loved ones who have died deaths that, you know, they were dying 18 years of cancer or something. I'm used to the fact he's dead for it. October made 14 years. I still talk to him. I don't know if he can hear. I don't purport to have any of the answers. I should probably insert parenthetically that the book is oftentimes funny. <laughs> I'm making mm. it sound like a dirge and the book yeah. itself is often, the story itself is not funny. The book in, in the telling is, and he and I were very funny together. He had a great sense of humor. And if anyone would understand that I have a morbid sense of humor about his joke, it's TJ, but it starts at his his memorial and that is verbatim what my brother said this memorial eight balls and mm -hmm. then we work back in time and then back to the present and i incorporate the research there's a considerable body of neurological research about the neurobiology of people who engage in extreme sports and what prompts them because like i said tj was not suicidal he would always say he felt most alive when he was climbing what mm. prompts someone to feel most alive when they're a hair's breadth away from death? And going to your point about the shorter chapters, it's because I do have Emmy. Mm. I admire Tolstoy profoundly. I couldn't write like him if you put a gun to my head. You know, those chapters that are 110 pages, can't do it. So in my case, form follows function. I cannot write a long chapter. And the when I... I wrote, directed, and produced two plays in the late 90s when I had a sustained remission, wherein I always felt like I had a mild flu, but I could do much more. And the the plays themselves are shorter and the scenes are shorter. I do not have the physical duration to write long. But it seems to resonate with everyone that it's mm -hmm. shorter and, and immodestly that I managed to work in a number of different subjects in a, in a shorter word count. So mm. it sort of works out for everyone. Yeah. And I, I think if, if people are interested in reading something that, that's not too, I mean, it, it, it was just really interesting to read because I kind of learned stuff through it and, and it's an interesting topic and it, it's deeply sad, but like you say, you, you sort of do incorporate some humor in it and, and, and it's, um, uh, my my um my cousin climbs and uh, i was thinking about him while i was kind of reading it it's, it was interesting but um what what was really interesting as well was the kind of the bits uh towards the end where you talked about the research and 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 for for climbers this kind of like difficult this sort of balance between the sort of like the dopamine hits and the kind of the, right. the almost like an addiction and 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 for people that climb to to get that kind of kick almost, but then 
is it a choice or is it uh, it was interesting because Dov, Dov also read the book and he sort of noted it is it a choice or is it an addiction and, and, and is that a contradiction and how do we how do you sort of like figure that out for people that are, that, that are kind of like um, seeking those kind of thrills in a way I, I think those are incredibly insightful questions Mm-hmm. I I never ever speak on TJ's behalf because after 14 years mm. people evolve and change. I can make a an educated guess what I think he would say, but I never ever <laughs> answer on his behalf. This will be the one exception. <laughs> if he were here, he would definitely argue it is not an addiction. Because mm. while he was still alive, I never posited that it was an addiction, but I was getting worried about kind of a compulsive aspect to it mm. and he refuted me at each turn that he didn't find anything compulsive about it that he really and i do believe when he said that it brought him this enormous joy in life and as he said he was drawn to the grand vistas that at that elevation you see things you cannot see at any other elevation or part of the world and of course he's mm. correct and when he died i think the word i heard most often to describe him was sweet Everyone said he was really sweet. And I'm 100% Greek. My family's been in the United States forever, but you know, Greek dads are notoriously protective of their daughters. And when TJ and I were younger, my dad could be extremely hard on him. But as we got older, dad really liked him and my brother really liked him. And my mom did too. But <laughs> to have gotten the seal of approval from a Greek dad is mm-hmm. a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And the world always seems a little bit emptier without him. And I think that's true for all of us who've loved, who've loved someone that deeply and then they're gone. And tragically, that's just part of growing older. We're all going to lose more and more loved ones until it is us. But I'm always grateful that he was here. Mm. And that's how I, without giving away the end, the ending of the book, but it, it does touch on that. That's Mm. what I'm left with. I was a lot angrier in the earlier years because his death was not a suicide, but neither did he get hit by a bus. He played mm. a role in his own death. And that was hard because there's really no place. That's why I joke in the book, you know, there is no support group for this. Mm. Um, it's funny how many people didn't get that that was a joke and who asked if I wanted to start a support group. I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to sit around with a bunch of other people who have gone through this because we're all just going to bum each other out. Yeah, I'm going to have to lie flat now because I'm getting really dizzy and weak. So pardon me, everyone. I think I think our given audience here will understand. Yeah, we're just all about being being ourselves. Four Beatles in the shot. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. Um. So that that's altitude sickness, and I'd really. Um, yeah, I'd really encourage people to sort of. Uh, you can get it on Kindle, or yeah, you can, you can get hard copies. Um, yeah, it's and, available yeah. from the publisher Future Tense Books in Portland, Oregon, here in the states. You can get it on Amazon, like you said. You can get it in, in hardcover. You can get it on Kindle. I'm I'm really pleased it's still growing strong nine years later for mm. for a smaller publisher that we've done this and that it's. I mean, it's not. It's not Franzen in terms of sales, but it, it's still going, and that's that's invigorating. Mm. So I was gonna I was gonna ask you as well about your writing around music as well. Is 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 music a big passion for you? Is that something you've kind of yeah. developed? And 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 I didn't I wondered if you had some sort of stories from your music writing. Here, I'm gonna as I answer this, I'm gonna see you can see the Beatles and Nina Simone just right out of the gate. Yeah. I have this huge wall collage uh, with a number of my loved ones and a number of my favorite authors and musical artists. Yeah, just like many of us have always been a huge, huge fan. And part of the reason most of my friends in high school, hey dudes, I'm still friends with them, um, that I was the only girl in the group. I was in high school in the 80s and mm. there were only a handful of girls who were into music the way I was into music. And there was a lot of kind of looking up at the boys with doe eyes. And I was like, no, I want to go to all the record stores and I want to go to all the shows. And I had very strongly held informed opinions. 
And it's funny looking back how much of that was the propulsion for how these friendships developed, how I ended up in a crew of mostly guys. And like I said, I'm still friends with most of them to this day, which is pretty great. Um, so I've always, always, always loved the Beatles and the stone for me, my formative, my formative bands were the Beatles, the stones, the kinks and the who, and then it grew into that, into Aretha Franklin, Janis Joplin, Marvin Gaye. And just, I, I was enamored of that whole era. And then REM came along and for the first time hmm. there was a band that my friends and I all just fell in love with. And they were, they were 10 years older than us, but they were our band. Mm. because you know obviously all the all the name groups i just named the first time around they were from the 60s and mm. i was in high school in the 80s it was sticks ario speedwagon journey and i know a lot of people love journey well i'll have to agree to disagree <laughs> but just bands that i could not get with at all it's like what and every dude you met at that age had to tell you about rush and i was like and i know a lot of people love rush i get that they're musical geniuses they just do nothing for me but <laughs> the rem came along and it's funny i've had this conversation with three different friends recently how transformative that was for a number like the art geek gen x literary <laughs> music nerds rem was who we fully embraced in the 90s in seattle was also a pretty spectacular time because obviously you had nirvana soundgarden alice in mm. chains Pearl Jam, um, and then Sky Cries Mary and other bands that didn't quite break through at the same, you know, just worldwide stratosphere. I was too sick to go to any of those shows. I got sick in 91. Mm. And like an idiot, I spent 1990 in law school. So <laughs> mm. when I might have been, when there's this huge change, this permanent artistic blossoming slash revolution in Seattle, despite having majored in creative writing in college and getting a straight 4.0, so the equivalent of a straight A throughout the entire program, I was editor of my high school paper. The one time <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, see, okay, can I, can I live life as an attorney, as an upstanding citizen with a more dependable paycheck? I missed the burgeoning Seattle scene because I was in law school. And then after Nirvana was on Saturday Night Live, and then there was just every media outlet in the world was camped out in Seattle for the next three years. <laughs> I was in a wheelchair. So I was still listening to them. But yeah. in the beginning, I don't know, was your onset like this too? In the beginning, I couldn't listen to music at all. It was just, now I have to listen to it on low. I can no longer attend shows. I haven't been able to attend a show since I saw Elvis Costello in 2015. But the first two years I had ME, music was too much. The sensory overlay, it hurt. It physically hurt. Yeah. I go and through phases. When, it's, it's funny, I, I listen to lots of music and then I won't listen to music for a while because it's just, yeah, like you say, too much. It it, And again, I think that's another symptom it's hard. And we, we know why that's occurring on a neurological level, but it's hard for someone who hasn't experienced it to understand hmm. because it's such a joy, even if not hmm. all of us have the same musical taste, music almost universally brings joy and a sense of belonging and allows you to feel tethered to something bigger. So I'm really proud that Seattle created all of these bands and nurtured them. I wish I had played some active role in it. Mm. I fell into music writing by accident. I interviewed someone for the believer, which is Dave Eggers, one of Dave Eggers publications, and it went very well. And then paste asked me to write the first cover story on death cab for cutie. And that was in 2005. Wow. And this was, I had been in the wheelchair again in 2001, but by 2004, 2005, I could either go with a cane to shows. Um, Cause again, there, when I was back in the wheelchair, there were a good two years, three years, completely incapable of attending music in any realm. And again, had to listen to things on low or not at all. And then when Paste asked me to write the cover story for Death Cab, 
It's like, yeah, I hadn't written a cover story before. It was 5,000 words. And that damn nearly did me in physically. That was one of mm. the hardest. Inter- the writing itself wasn't that difficult, but the, the length of it made it. Un- I was just so, <laughs> I was so ungodly ill after I turned it in. And I had been in a better period at that time anyway, or I couldn't have written it. Oh, and the kicker was over the weekend, and this was when it was it was online, but print was still much more of a, a force than it is now. The editor-in-chief calls me to let me know that they've upped the print run by 200,000. So we have wow. to get this just right. And as if I wasn't already feeling like I was on the verge of throwing up, I just remember <laughs> this knot in my stomach during the phone call. I was like, I hadn't written a cover story before, so okay, don't screw this up. Uh, It went well. It went well. And then I got asked to write more and more music stories. And for a long time, I wrote, I interviewed musicians for Esquire, New York Magazine, MSN Music. Uh, Interviewing Betty Davis for Esquire remains one of my all-time, it was one of the most poignant interviews. Mm. For those who don't know, she was light years ahead of her time. She was a soul singer in the late 60s and early 70s. She was one of the first black models to appear in American fashion magazines. Uh, she was married to Miles Davis. Sometimes people only know her through that connection. But she sang about sex in a really frank, honest way and just had this amaz- amazing rhythmic pop- propulsion and had a fantastic band, but she was wearing the sky high. I don't know if you've ever seen the photo of her in these sky high silver LeMay platform boots and a mini skirt. And she just looks like a queen. Well, this was Mm -hmm. when an era where, and I'm very much a feminist, so not critiquing the sisterhood here, just putting forth the history. (laughs) It was in a period in feminism where the, the prevailing ethos was to get away from mini skirts and makeup and everything. So you had a Mm. bunch of second wave feminists walking around in drindle skirts and Betty Davis is just full blown glory with false eyelashes. And, and as she told me in this interview with Esquire, and this was 2007, I believe not fitting in anywhere. She was getting blowback from feminism. She was getting blowback from the NAACP. They didn't think she was presenting African-Americans in a positive light. Now she's embraced every soul singer, a whole lot of hip hop artists. She's considered Mm. one of those who was just so far ahead of her time. She fit in nowhere, Mm. but is now completely embraced. And she died. I want to say two years ago, Google, all of you with, you can just look that one up. But if you have not listened to her music, highly recommend Light in the Attic mm. reissued four of her albums. Uh, they're masterpieces, the first two in particular. Mm. And she was very shy and reserved and and kind of felt the industry had just used her up and spit her out. And it had. It had. But mm. that was one of the most gratifying interviews. I, I genuinely felt honored to speak with her. Mm. Wow. Fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I I really, I think from anything that I miss, apart from like working and things like that, I really miss live music and and um, I I I sort of I'm sort of like generation later than you, I guess, and I I I sort of grew up on like U two and 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 uh, Britpop and things like that, and um, I got to I got to go. I, I got to go and um, I, I saw you two once at, at Twickenham Stadium in London um, in 20, in the summer of 2017. So it was about five, six months before I got ill. And I'm just like really glad I got to do it. It was like, you know, one of their sort of huge, huge events kind of thing. And, and they did the um, um, the Joshua Tree album. It was like they were kind of going back to that again. And um, yeah, it was just it was just brilliant. And it's one of those sort of like memories that you kind of you think I'm so glad I did that because like, then I became ill, like, I, you know, I didn't know I was going to become ill, like, sort of a few months later. And, um, yeah, there's this certain sort of times. And, and, yeah, it just really, like, even if I was kind of doing better, I think I'd struggle, like, in a live music venue because I think it's just this sort of sensory overload. So it's like even yes. if I could, like, walk into the venue and 
sit down it would just be like i wouldn't last for very long and, and that's that's the frustration isn't it with with me that you kind of you can't access like it's not with disability you know you, you could talk about wheelchair access and all those sort of stuff but it's it's the actual ability just to even be in that environment for very long before you before it kind of hits you and that's it's hard and, and the lack of predictability most yeah. of the time I mean, for all of us how many years have you been sick now so six um uh, since 2018 this time but i had it for seven okay. years as an adolescent as well so i had like a 20 year okay. break from it and then it hit me again so yeah oh, God, i'm so sorry daniel yeah but you the reason i was asking we know there's kind of we're able to predict somewhat our level of strength mm. not consistently but at this point you have a sense okay whether to even buy tickets for the show yeah. And going to your exact point, if a crash hits during a show, it's it's physiological impossible to even get out of there. Yeah. And you have that nightmare because mm. it only happened to me once, but you have that nightmare scenario where you're crashing and it's hard to see. It's hard to hear. You can't balance. You have no strength and you've got, you know, 18,000 people around you. And somehow you've got to get from mm -hmm. where you are to the car and somehow get home. So it 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 feels like you're playing russian roulette mm. and even if you can go it's like what's going to be after after effects in terms of the the post-exertional oh, wow. stuff as well so it's yeah when's it going to hit you afterwards and is it worth when it I was, when i was interviewing musicians i wasn't always able to go to shows and indeed for some acts like kelly Rowland, um alanis morissette those were all those were all on the phone uh billy corgan um who I, I don't know if I got him on a good day. I don't, because I'd heard everyone who'd interviewed <laughs> Billy Corgan had warned me. And we got along famously, and he was in a very good mood. So I don't know if I was a statistical anomaly or not, but but many of them <laughs> were doing national press and they were doing phone interviews anyway. So I wasn't required, like Sam Beam for Iron and Wine, I wasn't required to attend a show. I miss being able to go to live music. I and without a treatment mm. or a cure, Elvis Costello in 2015 at Seattle's Paramount Theater will be my last. And it was I I think that was the 12th time I'd seen Elvis. He's one of my all-time favorites. And mm -hmm. I was very sick and going to your point, I don't think I moved at all for about a week after. And mm. was very dizzy and very nauseous, but it was Elvis. And in terms of cost benefit analysis, I figured, yeah, it's worth it. Mm. But now I've degenerated to the point. It's not, a, it's not a decision. I've got two good hours a day. And by the time I even got to the show, half of that time would be used. And then like you so mm. astutely noted the, the sensory overload that accompanies music of that volume. One of my very good friends, mm. um, I would say his name, but he, he's a privacy dude. <laughs> so, mm. but he had suggested getting state of the art headphones and maybe that would allow me to attend shows. And I explained to him, I said, no, it, when the music is of that vol volume, there's just really no way for, for my body to process it anymore. If I could, I would, mm. but, but now mm. it, it's, and that, I mean, we all know far bigger heartbreaks than that, but when you love something that much, it's hard to give it up. Yeah. 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 And just, like for me, it's just like being in the middle of a, a crowd of people like energized me in the past. Do you know what I mean? Or especially the sort of gigs where you're standing and you kind of like, you know, it's, it, there's a real atmosphere there and, and, um, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's what, that's definitely one of the things that I, that I find hardest. It's, um, but but like you say, it's, it's I guess it's um, finding ways to kind of like appreciate music when you can as well um, in different ways. Yeah. So mm, right now uh, for me, it's yeah, listening it's to it on the days that I can listen to it, listening to music on low online, and that's mm. I'll I'll do it until I cannot, and then when it just feels mm. like as I describe it, it feels like someone's taking a cheese grater to my brain. When I reach that point, it's like, okay, now I'm just lying quietly in silence with my dog. All of my physical energy is devoted to my dog, Jordan, 
he's a Pomeranian and we go for a short walk in the morning, a longer walk in the afternoon and a shorter walk in the evening. And I'm able to make meals, but even then they're very healthy meals, but they're very simple because 99.9% .9 of my physical energy is devoted to the health and well-being of my dog. And I love him more than I can describe. And I don't know if I could keep going without him. I know the correct mm. answer is friends and family. And that's, I love my friends and family profoundly. Um, a number of my friends of late have just been astoundingly kind. My friend Robin took my dog and me and, and drove us because I, I haven't been able to drive in, in 13 years. She took us so we could go look at Christmas lights in a different neighborhood. My, I just had to go to the emergency room two weeks ago. My friend Lynn like camped out with me in the emergency room for six and a half. I was there eight hours. She was there for six and a half of them. But a lot of my life, as my friend Chris always says, he says, if he calls me comrade, he says, comrade, if you're out of bed at all, your life is always interesting. And it's true. If mm -hmm. I can do anything at all, it's the results. I have a pretty good time, but of late, there have been so many cancer and radiation complications. And then to have had the small heart attack last year, aside from walking the dog, and they're not long walks because he's not a huge dog. He's a little guy. Most of my day is in bed. And between the evening walk, I'm sorry, the afternoon walk and the evening walk, sometimes I'm watching a movie or reading a book or writing. But as often as not, I am lying flat in the dark with my eyes closed. And even if it's mm. summer, I'll have to draw the blinds or put a towel over my eyes to block out the light because the photosensitivity is so extreme when the other symptoms are so extreme. And again, I, I know it's hard sometimes for people who have not experienced this to understand what it's like. Uh, do you feel trapped in your own body? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it sometimes, yeah. I try not to dwell on it too much because it it gets you down an awful lot, don't doesn't it? And I think it's it's just trying to sort of like get through each day managing as best you can i suppose but yeah what we've been doing a grief series recently and, and different people have been talking to us about the impact of grief on chronic illness and, and one person said a very similar sort of analogy feeling like a caged tiger and i think when when you've got activist tendencies maybe like yourself it, it, being like a caged tiger is quite a good description and uh yeah some some days i might feel like that and other days i don't so it, i think it very much depends from day to day but yeah being trapped in your own body is it, it, it yeah I, I like that analogy and analogy yes yeah thank you thank you mm. i end up feeling like yeah. that most of the time that mm. i'm just desperately looking for an exit not in a in an existential way that i want to die but can i get mm. out of this body because i feel like the essence whether we want to say soul or core, whatever, however we want to define it. I feel like that part of me has nothing to do with this illness and is trapped mm. in a body that has been hijacked. Mm. But yeah. I don't mean that in a way to bum you out. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, I, I think we've all, and I think by talking about these things and, the, and, and finding analogies, useful analogies, I think it helps because, and I think it's one, one, you know, people have commented on listening to the podcast that it's been really helpful that actually we're talking about things that people can relate to and particularly with ME and chronic illness it's 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 difficult isn't it because I think and there's so many other things that we could get onto I'm just aware of the time so we'll probably finish soon because we're probably wearing, wearing each other out but um I think there's there's so many things that that are unique to the experience of like energy limiting conditions and that 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 um that I think is difficult to kind of put into context until unless you really understand it and and hopefully by doing the podcast these sort of podcasts that it's it's hopefully people maybe without you know me or, or that are interested but kind of like want to learn more are listening but it for me it, it feels what I, I feel like maybe trying to do is is just affirm for other people you know what what we're going through and that actually that there's others out there that are going through this and that it's, you know, 
it's it's very real and and um and we we could have got onto we I had I had on the list to talk about sort of medical trauma and gaslighting and things like that because I, I know that's something you want, you've talked can about. Can you go another five to ten? I can. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to mess something. you out. I'm lying down, so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ask ask me what you want to ask. Um. No, because I know that on on the millions missing, that was something that 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 you touched on in terms of the the and, and i guess we've talked about it a little bit in terms of the history of of me uh and the name of and, and and everything that's come with that in terms of um the the stigma that's come with it and 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 i think maybe it'd be good to just sort of finish off talking about some of the activism stuff and you've written about me as well haven't you and i think that's i have really powerful powerful to have somebody in your position that is has been able to do that and actually put across a really um real um picture of the illness and and like you say not not just focusing on the fatigue but this is like a whole myriad of symptoms that come with the condition that 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 makes me extremely disabling and and um yeah like thanks for for doing that do you feel you've got like a responsibility or do you feel like a pressure to write about me and chronic illness or do you do you feel it's part of who you are so it comes naturally uh, the latter. For me, it feels like it's part of who I am and it does come naturally. Mm. And even from the beginning, I mean, there's still, as we both know, this cataclysmic stigma that accompanies this illness through no fault of the people who have it. But I've been out from day one. And in the early 90s, it was, you know, like saying you had three heads. Uh, but I knew from the beginning something is attacking my body. And I got sick at 24. By the age of 26, I was asking my doctors, what is this going to do to my life expectancy? And of course, at mm. that time, even the doctors who knew something real was occurring physio physiologically, they told me not to worry about it, that by the time you're old enough to worry about it, we will have a treatment or a cure. And mm. I hope... I'm being charitable here. I hope their intent was good and that perhaps it was hard to look a 26 year old in the eye and say, we don't know. Um, I was not surprised at all when decades later research corroborated that of course ME can be potentially fatal. And indeed, as you know, in the UK, you guys started adding it as a potential cause of death on death certificates in 2012. Mm. I, I always felt that whatever had happened to my body was going to shorten my life expectancy. And the Open Medicine Foundation in the United States is the collaborative research team of Stanford, Harvard, and now the Mayo Clinic. And they, mm. they say they're going for a cure and God willing, they discover one. Uh, without one, I don't, I'm just going to speak for myself. I don't think my story ends well at all. <laughs> I don't know if anyone heard that. My dog just growled. Hey, buddy. I didn't hear that. Uh, that my dog growled at that exact moment. Um, <laughs> hi, Jordan. <laughs> it, it feels like I'm dying. I very much believe when... To be clear, this next study was not conducted by Yale, but Yale found it solid enough that they they added it to one of their ME features uh, on Yale Med School's website. This was a few months ago. That the average life expectancy of a person with ME is fifty five point nine, and well, I'll be fifty seven in February. In recent years. My thyroid cancer was misdiagnosed at the physician question at Polyclinic Madison in Seattle. <sighs> Told me for two years, she dismissed every symptom as menopause, which of course is what happens when you're a woman over 50, just it's menopause. <laughs> it might not mm. be. And by the time it was discovered in the ER, it was stage three. And the only reason it was discovered is I, ref I had to go to the ER twice in 36 hours and I refused to go home the second time. I said, something is really wrong and you're missing it. The radiation treatment has made me 
unfathomably ill. And if I could go back in time and say, no, don't give me radiation, I would do that because it didn't get rid of the cancer. <laughs> hmm. I still have cancer and the radiation caused my salivary glands to rupture, just a laundry list of other symptoms. And then last year I had a small heart attack and I would like to underscore for everyone with ME, if you don't already know this, people with ME have higher rates of cancer. We have higher rates of heart complications. Wealth of research. Uh, the N NCBI section in the United States of the NIH has, you, you can just scroll through, you can Google it and you can find everything. So explaining to my doctors, these are not unconnected because I had just this team of MDs looking at me baffled, like, whoa, you've got ME and we don't know anything about that. You've got stage three cancer and now you've had a heart attack. And me basically drawing a graph, <laughs> like kids work with me here. These are all connected. Um, mm. Not everyone has ME to the same degree. Not everyone has the same symptoms. But I very much believe this is killing me. And I recently told my my cancer doctor last month and subsequently fired her because when I told her this is killing me, and I'm not saying that for a fact, this is unsustainable. I don't know how much longer I can live this way, but regardless of my tenacity, this is killing me. And she looked me in the eye and said, I believe you, but this is not in my wheelhouse. And she said, I don't have the time to read about ME. And we know ME also disrupts the endocrine system. So ME is very much in her purview as a thyroid cancer specialist and she did nothing. So I fired her. But that's at the University of Washington, which is supposed to be one of the United States best clinics. And it's here where I live in Seattle. Well, a new cancer doctor had someone from patient relations call me. This was just earlier this week. And he's agreeing to be my cancer doctor with the caveat that I refuse to discuss ME. And I told the wow. person from patient relations, I said, okay, but that means we're going to have a lot of medically inaccurate doctor appointments. And I said, I don't understand when you know I'm taking notes, why you're telling me this over the phone. Hmm. So where I draw hope is no one credible can refute that ME is real, disabling, degenerative, and potentially fatal. And our Centers for Disease Control just announced last week, so six days ago, that vastly more Americans have ME than they previously thought. They're now wow. putting the minimum at 3.35 million, mm. which no shit anyone who studies ME knew. And it's actually going to be much, much higher than that. But it's impossible for any clinician, even though they keep doing it, they keep doing it. And I keep having to send in the research. And then I send in my own ME work that I wrote about for the Washington Post. I can see you're fading. We'll get, we'll get going. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so just to end this with a more hopeful note, there is an enormous amount of research online accessible for free. I am of a temperament. It's not hard for me to send it to my physicians and say, you need to read this. What's wearing me down is this arrogance that they bring to the table that if they don't know it, it's not mm. happening. And to me, it's not mm. only arrogant, it's dangerous and it's anti-intellectual. But for anyone mm. who's newer to this illness, it's not like it was in the nineties where we had a very limited body of research. Uh, there's an enormous amount of research out there now. Cornell, Yale, Stanford, Harvard, mm. Oxford. Like I said, Oxford has developed the diagnostic test. So there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful, despite the fact we're, we all feel, I think, like we're trapped in this maze in hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's good to hear that because I think sometimes it feels like nothing's moving on. And, and um, I really appreciate people that, you know, can, can disseminate the science and kind of grasp it and, and, and move things on. And, and it's, it's good to hear that and it really is because it, it it does give us a little bit of hope even though i think the biggest challenge is 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 the fact that the the, the science is there the research is there but it's it's it, it feels like it doesn't filter down to the doctors who kind of need to to access it somehow they, they they're not aware or they don't read or like you say they're just they're not interested and and that's the big frustration isn't it that 
there needs to be a sort of like a cultural change or a cultural shift within the medical profession to actually kind of listen and take on board. So like, I'm really interested in um, what would be brilliant is to kind of maybe speak to you again uh, when you do get your book published and um, and oh, to hear a bit more about that and read and read and uh, I'd love you know to read to to read Fire in the Hole because I, I think that'll be an important um, bit of work and I think it'll be um, really interesting to read that. So I think that that that'll be brilliant to, to 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 speak into that a bit more. Thank so, you so um, much, Daniel. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And thank you for. Thank you for being here. It's been I've really enjoyed it and uh, hearing hearing your stories and to um and your experiences and yeah and um thanks for everything you do for the ME community as well. It's um it, it's good and um I really really right appreciate it. So. Right back to you. <laughs> Take care. Happy holidays. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>